everybody. Thanks for being here. And welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, a biogeochemist and a professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we're talking with inspirational individuals who are working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. Last episode, we talked with Juan Carlos Villasenor Derbez about COBE, an innovative conservation organization working with fishing cooperatives in Mexico to manage marine protected areas. And this week, our guest is Arlo Hemphill, Senior Oceans Campaigner with Greenpeace USA. Greenpeace works toward a lot of the same goals that COBE does, but often through a very different approach. In fact, Greenpeace is also quite actively involved in the same deep sea fishery labor abuse issues that we discussed in our very first episode. But today, I was specifically looking to talk to an expert about deep sea mining. And that's because this issue is incredibly timely right now, but largely invisible behind the, you know, everything else going on. The United Nations, is in the midst of negotiations that will likely permit the creation of a whole new mining industry that Greenpeace says cannot be done sustainably, full stop. So what is this? Let's find out. Arlo, thank you for meeting with me this morning. Great. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. So to get us started, could you describe what you consider the big central issue or issues that motivates your work on deep sea mining? We are concerned about the full range of potential impacts of an industry that is not off the ground yet, but once fully legal and fully financed could massively ramp up in a very short amount of time. Um, because of potential financial interest in it. These interests range from complete ecosystem destruction to noise impacts on marine mammals to disturbing deep sea sediments that are a storehouse of carbon, where this carbon has been accumulating and locked away for centuries to millennia, and then recirculating that carbon into uh, the ocean and atmospheric systems, thus contributing to climate change. And the the areas of interest to deep sea mining are also in some of the most unknown and wildest locations in the ocean, places that we should be treasuring first before other places because of just how pristine and unknown they are. And so that's why we don't want to see this industry get even get a foothold. Wow. Okay. So what exactly is deep sea mining? What are we talking about here? Deep sea mining is basically the ocean equivalent of land mining, although there's different kinds. There's some kinds that will look exactly like land mining with big underwater bulldozer looking type of equipment and heavy machinery that chip away at rocks and, and smash and pummel and basically everything that you do in like open pit mining um, on land, they'll have the equivalent in the sea. There's another form of mining that is being developed Actually, it's out in the lead because it's a sort of an easier process to get a hold of, which there are places in the abyssal plain where the, the bottom, the seabed just looks like 
kind of flat mud for, for miles and miles and miles. And it's littered with these kind of grapefruit sized rocks that form just on the, on the seabed, on the surface. And there, the process looks a lot more like a giant form of vacuum cleaning, hmm. where, where they will kind of create these giant conveyor belt type systems and literally suck these rocks up into kind of chutes and ladders and onto the ship and then, and then redrop the sediments back into the ocean after they've retrieved, the rocks are called manganese nodules. Got it. So in this particular story, we're going down thousands of meters to the abyssal plain. Yeah. And we're going after nodules because they, why? So these nodules are rich in what is called energy metals. And these are the metals that are most used by the tech industry and by renewable energy batteries. So everything from the batteries that, that store electricity created from wind farms to the batteries in a Tesla electric vehicle. And these are lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt are the ones that, that everybody's excited about getting from the bottom of the sea. Got it. So we've gone down thousands of meters with a vacuum cleaner of some sort that's going to go around and pick up these large, heavy, metal-rich nodules that are sitting on top of the sediments. And then we put those nodules on a really large ship, presumably, and dump all the mud back down to the bottom. Am I picturing this right? That's right. So it will look like a a big barge that just accumulates the nodules. And then the sediment um, will be just dumped back in the ocean. They are looking at different ways of doing this from the most destructive would be just dumping it right at the surface to kind of like trying to pipe it down further so so that the plume that's created from the sediment isn't as impactful, but regardless of how they do it, there is going to be a plume of sediment that trails off of these operations. And with the manganese nodules, that's the the number one concern. So why is this plume such a concern? One is like direct, the sediment itself is a highly biodiverse um, ecosystem. It's not the kind of biodiversity that gets um, the public on nature programs excited. It's more like things in the mud, nematodes and worms and, and things like this, but extremely rich and extremely unknown. But then there's the potential to, to suffocate other ecosystems. So these areas, even though you're in the abyssal plain, you might be adjacent to a seamount with rich deep sea coral reefs going up the slopes. And this, these sediments plumes will travel for miles and miles and miles. So it could impact a completely other ecosystem that's sort of down current from, from where they're operating. And then there's just the impact of things that are in the water column. Like, how will this, how will this impact whales? How will this impact, especially like plankton feeders that are you know, going through the water column with their mouths open? So we don't, even, we don't know the answer to those things. And so you could swim through one of these plumes and end up with a mouthful of mud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound ideal. And I imagine too that you mentioned these going for miles and miles. I imagine these materials are really fine. You could go for a really long distance before any of that material would settle back out. Right. And then then the last thing that I mentioned at the beginning, but I I didn't mention it again here, is these sediments store massive, massive amounts of carbon. Yeah. Um, So basically what happens is everything that lives in the water column from small plankton to whales, some of it dies by being eaten by other things. But others, others will live their lifetime and then kind of w- when, when they die, kind of settle to the bottom. 
And basically what they're doing is they're absorbing carbon into their bodies as, as, as a living organism. And then as they die and settle to the bottom, that carbon is being inserted in these sediments. And these sediments just build up for millennia. And we're worried about all that carbon that's locked away, that's not part of the system, would have the potential of being re-released and, and then contribute both to ocean acidification in the ocean and to climate change when it enters the atmosphere. I understand. So these sediments are thousands of years of accumulation of carbon from above in maybe just a few centimeters of depth. And then as soon as we disrupt them in one scoop, we've potentially really amplified that cycle and sent things back up into the atmosphere much faster than any of the processes that pull it out. Right. Yeah, it's very much equivalent to like what you're seeing in the Arctic with the melting of, of the tundra and how that's releasing um, uh, methane, et cetera. Right. So these are for the nodules. Uh, and you mentioned that there were a couple of different major categories of mining. What are those other types? Right. So the three types that are going after the, the energy minerals are it's the manganese nodules, which are on the Bissell Plain. There's these things called ferromanganese crusts, which are basically sort of surface level rock deposits that line the sides of, of seamounts. And seamounts are just underwater mountains. And then the third is called massive sulfites. And these, these are the equivalent of ore deposits on land. These are directly associated and built around hydrothermal vents. So, so when you have ore on land, that, that was maybe on the ocean floor millions of years ago, and it's extinct. These massive sulfides are more recent. They're in the process of being created in association with hydrothermal vents. So there, you know, hydrothermal vents are one of the most unknown and unique ecosystems on the planet. Scientists have an idea that this is, this is possibly where life first showed up was around these, around these vents. Also around these vents, you have organisms that are only there and nowhere else in the world. They're adapted to the vents. The, the vents are like islands. So if you're familiar with the concept of island biogeography and how different islands have endemics because the populations are isolated from each other, the same thing around these places. And, and the mechanisms that they're looking at to retrieve these massive sulfides are the ones that are most similar to like pit mining on land. And so you're talking about complete annihilation of the ecosystems. Are they really talking about like drilling into the rock at the seafloor as well? Yeah, there, there's machinery that you can go online because a project was being developed in the waters of Papua New Guinea. It fortunately went bankrupt, but they had gone as far as developing the machines, test machines. And these look like out of a science fiction movie, like something that you would see like at the base in Avatar, just huge, huge machinery with like massive crushing pieces that, you know, that are built for drilling into ore and smashing rocks. It seems like this would be incredibly technically challenging to pull off. At these enormous depths, even just communications and controlling these different machines seems like it would be really challenging. And I can't imagine they'd have a soft touch. <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely would not have a soft touch. So basically, technologically, you're looking at everything that you would have to build or a landmine, but then it all has to be waterproof and be able to be sort of remote controlled from, a sh from the deck of a ship rather than somebody driving it around. So in this case, we're talking about complete obliteration of these small and highly unique ecosystems and presumably all these other problems as well in terms of maybe stirring up materials and disrupting ecosystems that are more far afield. Right, exactly. Wow. 
Are there any types of deep sea mining that can be done sustainably? At Greenpeace, we feel that the answer is no. There's definitely mining companies that are trying to make it more sustainable. None of these companies want to have a bad image. Most companies try to, even the worst offenders in the world, try to have a green image. You always see from the oil companies, you know, they're supporting tiger conservation at Exxon and things like that because they want a good green public image. So along with that, they are genuinely looking at ways to have less impact. But we feel the value of these ecosystems as they are, as carbon sinks, as unknown sources of future medicines and and home to types of creatures that we know nothing about in terms of their life cycle and reproduction and everything, that there's no way that, that you can be free of impact. And so we should never let the industry start. So when you say letting the industry start, presumably this hasn't happened yet in part because of technology, but it sounds like there's more to it than that. It's the biggest reason is international law. So, so most of the areas where, where, where they're looking at these deposits and, and, or have the manganese nodules on, on the surface of the seabed are in international waters. That consists about two thirds of the ocean and almost half of our entire planet. And that part of the ocean is governed by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And the convention was very clear in dis- distinguishing governance of, of the water column and the seabed being a, dis- a distinct entity that they call the area. And so they've given governance of the area to a UN body that was created through the Law of the Sea called the International Seabed Authority. It's it's based in Kingston, Jamaica, and it operates like a smaller version of the United Nations. It looks exactly like the United Nations. Countries of the world come and gather in that U-shaped room, and the procedures go very much like, like they do um, in New York at, at the United Nations. The role of the International Seabed Authority is to create a complete set of agreed regulations and principles around deep sea mining. That's where they're negotiating. And by international law, until they agree on this complete set, which as a whole, it's called the mining code, until the mining code is agreed by all countries and everybody's comfortable with it, deep sea mining is prohibited in international waters. How long have they been working on this? They've been working on it for decades, but the last couple years, there has been a new administration, a new secretary general in the Seabed Authority, who's very motivated to complete the mining code. So there has been rapid acceleration in getting the mining code done, and now it is mostly complete. There's a few major parts where there's disagreement, but the Seabed Authority itself had a stated goal of finishing the mining code July 2020. Because of COVID, the meetings weren't able to happen in person this year, and that has postponed this this possibility of a near-term mining code but we're still looking at the potential of the mining code being agreed upon in 2021 or shortly or shortly after, probably not more than two years um, after that. And is it these environmental issues that are the sticking points in the negotiation? The environmental issues are one of them, but they're not the major issue. The biggest issues ha- has to do with access and benefit sharing. So the law of the sea designates the seabed as the common heritage of all humankind. By international law, it belongs to everyone equally. And well, countries interpret this differently. Some countries, usually the wealthier countries, 
interpret it as, oh, that means anybody with the, with the resources can go out there and take whatever they want because it belongs to all of us. Other people, usually poorer countries without the, those same resources, view it as anything that's taken from the seabed belongs to everybody. So that if a mining company is out there mining, the profits, not necessarily the minerals themselves, but the profits will have to um, be figure out a way to share those across nations of the world so that everybody kind of benefits. And then there's sort of things that are in between where countries who are in between are like, well, we're going to keep our profits, but we're going to fund training and share data with, with all countries. Where then are these minerals coming from today, if not from the deep sea? So this is the problem with the energy minerals, and it really just creates this, this big sort of dilemma with we're trying to get these minerals and use them in this technology to have a carbon neutral future. That's the whole purpose of the green IT, the lithium ion batteries, the electric cars, is we all envision a, a, a future with less carbon, but we need these, these minerals in order to create that. And these minerals have the potential to just wreak havoc on ocean ecosystems. But right now, the problem is that these minerals are relatively rare on land. And they're often coming from places with very problematic human right violations or, or from war zones. So one of the biggest places where you're, you're sourcing nickel and cobalt is from West African nations that are using child slave labor in, in the mines. Obviously, companies creating tech do not want that as part of their image. So people are trying to find other ways to source these minerals without sourcing them from these hugely problematic regions. Other regions, it's more because of war, like Afghanistan is a nation that's very rich in these minerals. No one wants to invest in mining in, in, in Afghanistan for obvious security reasons. Now, there are other places like Canada and South America that also have deposits of these minerals, and they have not been either fully exploited or they, you know, land mining also has its range of problems. Got it. So are these minerals, do you think that they're going to be central to our green tech long term? Or is there a chance that they might be replaced by new generations of technology that kind of obviates this problem entirely? It would be great if that were possible. Right now, this is the way the technology is moving. I know that there's been some companies, Tesla is one that, that jumps to my mind, that has sort of played with the recipe of their batteries to lessen the, the amount of like the, the cobalt, which is so problematic, and replace that with using more nickel, which is less problematic. And so there is work in that realm as well. But right now, with the world trying to move to away from fossil fuels as an energy source and move to renewables, these metals are absolutely central to the, to the development of, of that technology. Well, and so I suppose gonna, certainly on the timescales at which we need to decarbonize, right, we're exactly. going to be dependent on them. Yeah. Well, so it seems like the message here then is a really complicated one, where this drive for green tech is pushing this work, but it's potentially really counterproductive for environmental well-being or damaging in its own way. So right. how do you approach trying to message this? How do you thread this needle on, we understand the importance of green tech and why we're here, but we need to balance human rights in cobalt mines in Congo and nematode populations in the Pacific and CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. How do you approach this? Right, well, there's a lot of columns of work, but with the sourcing, Greenpeace has partnered with Amnesty International to create a list of, of principles 
for the development of lithium ion batteries. What we're doing with that document and the reason we partnered with Amnesty is because Greenpeace kind of took the deep sea mining side of it, of, of it and the expertise around that issue and Amnesty International took the side of it with the, the child labor and the, the human rights violations on terrestrial mining. And so we kind of joined our, our expertise to create one document that would focus specifically on the batteries. And basically we're saying no deep sea mining ever. And we're talking about, you know, mining on land is a centuries to millennia old industry. Um, we're saying, let's look at improving those practices and, and getting rid of those practices and providing more accountability to that industry so that we don't have to go to the sea and wreck that too. And then we're also talking about the need for more tech recycling. Mm. Uh, we're using these minerals and then we're throwing away our iPhones when it's time to get the new model. And the industry has been terrible about reclaiming these minerals for reuse. We don't think that recycling alone is going to be, be able to fill the whole need, but it could contribute to the amount of these minerals that we source from wild places. Okay, so we have for best practices then increased recycling, better oversight, management, and decision-making around land mining. Are there right. any other best practices that you guys are advocating for? Well, well within that, we put local communities um, and marginalized people first. Hmm. The number one thing with, with terrestrial mining is the needs and interests of indigenous and traditional communities that are often located in the vicinity of their mines. So we put more emphasis on that than even like say some of the pollution issues that, that happen around mining is that we want to make sure that if mining is happening on land, that it is at the will of these people and, and that they benefit from it and that they're, they're not being abused by some industry coming in and, you know, stealing their land and abusing their people. But th those are the big principles that, that we're looking at. But then we have, a, we have many lines of work um, that we're trying to achieve this to try to stop deep sea mining from happening. One of those is we're going to corporations directly. The corporations most likely to use these minerals and we're asking them to make commitments to, to never source from deep sea mining. Are most of these companies, are we talking about a couple of big tech players in this field? So this work is just getting started. So I don't have specific examples of companies that we're moving yet because we're literally launching this, mm -hmm. but our target is we're, we will accept commitments from, from anyone. So a, a smaller company that's not a household name, if they want to come forward and say, we're going to promise to never use deep sea minerals in our products, we will applaud them and we'll put out a press release with them and you know say thumbs up. But our target is going to be the large internationally known tech and renewable companies. So like immediately we are going to be going after Apple, we'll be going after Tesla, Groups like this is who we want to see um, the commitments from. That's for two reasons. One is the share of the market they have is a greater impact. But secondly, somebody like Apple making a commitment like that influences a lot of other players. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of like the, the market angle that we're taking. Then we work within international law itself. We have people who, who attend the, the uh, International Seabed Authority meetings, attend other relevant UN bodies, and then as a, as a group of allied organizations, we're asking for um, a minimum of a 10-year moratorium be clamped down on this industry beyond just not developing the mining code to allow science to catch up. Because right now the industry and the financing is way out in front of our knowledge of, of deep sea ecosystems. 
So although Greenpeace wants no deep sea mining ever, we're joining the call for the moratorium as a first step to, toward, towards um, achieving that. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about this process of working with the UN. How does Greenpeace work with the UN? How do you get to go to these meetings? So we have official observer status um, at the United Nations. Any organization can apply for observer status. It's a kind of bureaucratic process of, of application. And then there's rules and protocols we you have to follow. We could lose that observer status if we you know didn't play nicely inside. But basically, when there's like these treaty meetings or the International Seabed Authority is meeting, we can go and we participate. You're, we're not down there like where the countries are. They have observers kind of off to the side. And there's a there's like a large gallery where you can sit and watch. But then there's also seats that look very much like the country seats that have a microphone and everything. Because the way it works is, you know, basically the negotiations are divided up into sections that run throughout the day. And so in every section, the countries would all have an opportunity to speak if they have something to say about a particular area of the text that's being negotiated. And once all the countries are done, the observers can speak. The, the only difference is Greenpeace can say what they want and they can influence the countries and try to get the countries to agree with us. But in the end, just because we say it, it doesn't count in the same way that it, that it counts with a country. So then when we're there um, at these meetings, we're also talking to the national delegates between sessions every single time. Greenpeace, because we're such a large organization, we usually send a delegation of about 15 people. Each of us will be from a different country. And so like my role when I'm there, I, I will go and I'll talk to the U.S. delegation on breaks. Or if they say something good or problematic, I'll go congratulate them or tell them we don't agree. And then, and then my colleague from Germany is doing the same thing with the German delegation, colleague from Indonesia with the Indonesian delegation. And we also usually hold a side event. And the, many of these meetings are structured where there's negotiations in the morning, negotiations in the afternoon. And then there's a lunch break in between where you have the option of like grabbing a bag lunch and going and hearing a talk. And we usually schedule at least one of those kind of events. And sometimes we'll bring in scientists to talk about a key topic of the negotiations. Other times we'll take a, a, a sort of different Greenpeace tactic and like bring in, like last year we brought Javier Bardem in and had, you know, his kind of celebrity um, draw just talk passionately about why he cares about the ocean and he wants this treaty to move, move forward as, as strong as possible. Now, beyond all that, we, we also do stuff outside of the UN. Inside the UN, we act very much like the other organizations. We're in suits and ties. And like I said, we have to follow the rules. If we did something crazy and really green PC inside, we could have our observer status revoked and then we'd never be able to go to the UN again. Mm -hmm. But we don't have those same limitations out on the streets of New York City. So there we might, you know, set up ice sculptures of making fun of an individual or do some kind of a demonstration or just the type of Greenpeace activism like you've seen us dangling off of bridges and, 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 and buildings. Anything outside of the UN in New York City like is fair game for those types of tactics, but not within the UN. I see. So this Greenpeace-y stuff, how do those kind of actions distinguish Greenpeace from some of the other observers, for example, at the UN? Yeah, so Greenpeace... Um, was founded around the principles of, of nonviolent direct action. It was actually some, some of our founders were Quakers and the idea of witnessing, bearing witness to atrocities happening 
is a Quaker tradition that permeated into the Greenpeace organization. And then just the whole history of nonviolent direct action from people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. is at the very core of what Greenpeace does. We work within the UN with very close friends and allies from groups like Pew Charitable Trust, Natural Resources Defense Council, Conservation International. They don't employ those same kind of tactics. They're much more about program-based conservation and the lobbying and the report writing aspects that we also participate in. And then when we wanna do something to get the media's attention that's sort of crazier, they usually give us a thumbs up behind closed doors and a wink and, <laughs> and, and say, you're on your own. You can't do mm -hmm. that in, in the name of our alliance, but, but go for it and we'll cheer from the sidelines. Mm -hmm. Greenpeace has ships, right? For direct action. How many yeah, ships we, do you have? We have three large ships that the whole organization shares. And then some of our country offices, we have, we have offices in 40 different countries. Some of the country offices will have smaller vessels. So like Germany is one that comes to mind that has a pretty large boat. It's not as big as our main ships, but it's bigger than any other of the country offices have. And then at minimum, countries will have like the ribs, which are the sort of inflatable Jacusto looking type of um, um, little boats. Cool. So what are these ships doing most of the time? They are usually campaigning. And when there's not a campaign, we use them for training. It really depends on what the campaigns are that need, that need ships. So this is usually figured out a year in advance. You know, the different country offices submit their ideas and then it's between them and what's called the ship unit that's based in the Netherlands to figure out the availability of ships, if, if a ship is available in that place and that time. And also, are the tactics cool? Like, is the country office like proposing something that's just maybe too, you know, out there or potentially dangerous or, you know, so illegal that we would have the ship destroyed or taken from us? So you might be, you might be um, protesting the tuna industry in the Mediterranean one month and then needed in the Arctic the next month. And so the ship will have to, you know, go in route. And we always take advantage of, of that time in route. That's usually when we do training. Got it. Okay. So it seems like the real power that Greenpeace and these large international organizations have is the ability to work on these really huge global campaigns where you're kind of outside any national jurisdiction, you're in something that's really very much the realm of the United Nations. How do you see this like global top-down approach contrasting other types of activism, for example, at the local level? So Greenpeace does both. So we, we do work at the top-down types of, of, of issues of, of global international policy. And we also work at the grassroots level with smaller grassroots organizations and, and even communities. But it really depends on the issue. So with something, say, like the destruction of rainforests in Indonesia because of palm oil, we might be on the ground or empowering people on the ground that, you know, the, the affected communities nearby. Something like this that requires agreement among global governments within UN bodies, there's less of that because we need to be influencing those countries. And we, we're, we'll either be doing that directly with direct engagement of the governments or, or using some of our actions to influence the public, all those kind of mechanisms, like grassroots work would, is not really the appropriate response when you're trying for a, a UN treaty. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more these higher level mechanisms. And then also just having access to the UN. It seems like that's quite an investment to 
get observer status, to go to New York City, to send 15 people from 15 countries and yeah. be there in the first place. So even though a small, less resourced organization could apply and get the observer status, they might not have the, the financial resources to fly campaigners there three times a year when these meetings are taking place, put them up in a hotel in Manhattan for, for two weeks at a time, and, and all those other expenses. So we are lucky in that sense that we are able to lend those resources to this cause. And we'll often bring people with us if there's a, an important voice that we know. Um, for example, last year, we brought the leader of, of a youth environmental um, movement from Iceland, and he joined the Greenpeace delegation at the UN, UN with us. So if there's a particularly like, important voice that we don't feel like we're the best ones to say it, we will bring people like that with us. Very cool. Has Greenpeace's approach to collaborating with local or grassroots organizations changed in the last few decades? Yes, it's, it's, we've always worked with local and grass, grassroots organizations, but as any big organization does, we've, had, we've made mistakes along the way. We always try to learn from those mistakes, not repeat them and, and do better. So there's, there was criticism of things that happened um, quite some time ago where, for instance, Greenpeace would come in in a big way to an issue, stir the pot, create a bunch of, b- bunch of trouble, and then leave. And the mm-hmm. local organization was left with this big mess that Greenpeace created. And mm-hmm. those kind of mistakes in our past has basically put Greenpeace on the path of pursuing a much more environmental justice, social justice focused mission where if you talked to us back in the 70s, we were all about no nukes and save the whales. Now our focus is, is shifted much more onto the impact of, of, of environmental concerns on human communities. And we put those communities, marginalized people, traditional communities and indigenous people first in our work. And that is ever increasing from the point of both how we operate within a campaign but also the campaigns themselves are, are, now, are, are, now, are now shifting in that direction. For instance, our primary fishery campaign right now is no longer about seafood sustainability, which it was five years ago. Now we are looking um, specifically at labor abuses and, and slavery at sea within distance water fishing fleets. And that is our number one fishery priority is the impact on these on workers, not the impact on the tuna. Mm-hmm. Well, and as we learned in a previous episode, these things do go together. Yes, they, are. they often go together. When you're not at the United Nations, <laughs> what is your day-to-day life like in this job? Okay, so it's been very different under COVID. My, my job mostly <laughs> consists of Zoom conferences for the- You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before COVID, it, it's very variable. So the campaigner role in Greenpeace is the person in the organization that moves an issue forward. So you work with the comms people to develop the media strategy, the digital people to decide what's going to be thrown on the website with the sort of key influencer people. These are the people who work directly with celebrities and and kind of bring their influence in. So you work with with that department to say like, hey, is there a celebrity that wants to come out on the ship tour with us and lend their support to the visuals people who are the people there kind of creating our the videos that you watch and capturing any actions that we do so that we you know can show it to the world. So the campaigner does all of that. And then like last year, I spent five years at sea. Five years. Last year I spent 
<laughs> that is truly incredible. <laughs> yeah. No, I spent five weeks at sea. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, and then there's a lot, you know, I go to all these UN meetings that we're talking about. So that takes a big chunk of, of the year. As I said, like the treaty meetings, will, they meet several times a year and it's two weeks at a stretch. The International Seabed Authority is two to three, two to three weeks at a stretch. And then there's planning meetings in between. In between, so you know when I say I go to sea for two and a half weeks at a time, there was six months lead up of that of planning everything that we we did on the ship. Mm-hmm. How did you start doing any of this? How did you get into this role at Greenpeace? So my background is in mar- marine biology, and I thought that I was going to be the typical marine biology track. Work in academia, study some organism that really nerdy, passionate about. And shortly after undergraduate, I got a really cool internship with the Smithsonian and was able to go down and spend a half a year in the Amazon in Ecuador. Wow. Um, and and it, that was an amazing pure science job. It wasn't um, environmental work. It, I, I was doing forest dynamics work. But what that opportunity opened for me was the opportunity to meet a wide range of people in the environmental and science field. And that included people from Conservation International, which is a very strong science-based but conservation organization. And so from the Smithsonian, I ended up at Conservation International with my first paid work in the environment. And I really didn't know before that point that this whole sector existed, that you could do environmental work um, as a career. I thought of it, you know, probably in high school and and undergraduate, I thought of it more as, oh, if anybody who's doing something for Greenpeace, they're volunteering. (laughs) I I didn't understand it as a work sector that it is. And once my eyes were open to how that, that there was this possibility of doing this for your entire life, I kind of just felt like that, that this was my place and not just the kind of traditional academic sector science. But Most of my career, I have been in in more in organizations like Conservation International that play within the lines, you know, more than (laughs) Greenpeace. And I started working with Greenpeace in a coalition um, in the early 2000s and got to know some of the people who worked here. We we got along great and I started to see the internal culture and, and really started appealing to me. And I was always impressed by their work because they bring a level of energy and creativity that you don't see in sort of um, more stiff suit and tie type of organizations. And about a few years before I started, I was working as an independent consultant out of a home office. And a friend at Greenpeace offered me the chance to sail across um, the Atlantic Ocean from Netherlands to New York City to act as an onboard researcher and collect data on microplastics. And I I was able to bring my, my homework with me and do my regular job. And then just for a couple hours each day, do this plastic work. So then I met the people on the ships, which is another completely different culture than the people who are in the offices, just completely fell in love with their, with their passion for the work. And so then shortly after that, I, a job opened up and I was like, yeah, I, I think I would like to throw my ring in the hat. And they, they accepted me. Amazing. So roughly how many people does Greenpeace employ in the United States? Probably 150 to 200 people, I would say. Okay. We have large offices in Washington, D.C. and Oakland, but then we have smaller offices in Chicago, New York City, um, Los Angeles, you know, and I think Portland. 
but the, the two main hubs are Washington DC and Oakland, a very, very large amount of people. Got it. And most of them have some biology background or is it really a range? No, there's actually very few biologists in any of these large organizations. There's always some because there, there are specific roles like staff scientist type roles that operate within all of these types of organizations. But then you have basically the same needs as any, like a large corporation has. So you, you need to have your accountants, you need to have your, your communications people to work with the press. You need to have more kind of tech savvy people who, who are managing the website or doing digital campaigns. You have lawyers, a lot of what I've described to you about this UN engagement, the expertise you need for that is not so much marine biology, but international law. And so you have a lot of lawyers on, on the staff of Greenpeace and these other organizations. Gotcha. So how did you originally decide to become a marine biologist if we pull all the way back? Okay. So I grew up um, spending summers at, in Ocean City, Maryland. My family has, runs a business there and mm. we would go down for the summer. And, and then when I was old enough, I would you know, work in our stores and it was just always my favorite time of the year. I loved fishing and crabbing and surfing and just, it was the thing that made me happiest. I was also a child asthmatic. And when I would go to the beach for the summer, my asthma would disappear because of the salt air. And so I knew as a senior in high school that that's what I wanted to do. And I looked for, for schools that had marine biology programs. I'm actually impressed you found marine biology as an undergrad major. Yeah, it was actually, a, it wasn't a full major. It was a specialization. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. So on the topic of advice, if someone is listening to this and is really excited to do the type of work that you do with a major international advocacy organization, is there additional advice that you would give them? Yeah, the two, the two pieces of advice I would have is look for um, schools that have, um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're still in college or pursuing a graduate degree, look for schools that have like a center based on the, on the field that you're interested in, in working. So look for somebody who has like a center for ocean conservation within the academic setting mm. because they're already connected into the community and doors are going to open to you through your professors if, the, if that type of center exists in the university. The other thing is start interning or volunteering for organizations that you're interested in early on. No one likes the idea of, of working for free. And I know not everybody's capable of, of doing it. I mean, just, just reality that we, we have bills, but if you can figure out a way to volunteer for a few hours in the, in the day, first, it provides you the initial experience that you need and how to work in these organizations. But the more important thing is the relationships that it builds. And oftentimes what will happen, somebody will come in as a volunteer or, or an intern, and then a few months down the road, a, a, a position opens up and, hey, we already know you and we like you. Why don't we give the job to you? The so, networking piece is huge. Right. So it's really, I feel that your relationships are, are way more important than your resume. You need to like start meeting people and building relationships with people in the field that you want to work in. And I feel like almost all the jobs that I've had have been sequential in that, like I knew the people or was connect or they considered me because they already knew me from this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what got me the initial interview because, you know, they worked in a coalition with me and when I was in a different job. So these things build on each other and it's really so much about the relationships. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been incredibly interesting. Everything from the issues with mining itself to 
what it's like to work at Greenpeace. So thank you so much for your time. Sure, thanks for having me, it's been fun. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks as always to Eleanor Durand and to Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. In our next episode, we dig into a burning question blowing through all of our minds as the West is consumed by flames and the Atlantic produces Hurricane Zeta. What is going on and what happens next? Enter researchers like Dr. Danielle Tuma, a climate researcher who works to model changes in extreme weather. We'll get some answers next week. <laughs>